When we unlearn mastery of writing and storytelling, our entire way of being storytellers changes. It has to change. Stories are never finished. They're never experienced the same way twice, and they are inherently collaborative encounters at every single step along the way. You're writing the story. The story is also writing you. Welcome to The Inspirited Word, the podcast for visionary writers ready to stop second-guessing their storytelling and ready to start breathing life and spirit back into their craft. I'm writer and editor Mary Lanham, and I'll be your host and fellow seeker as we rediscover the true power of our work, our words, and maybe even ourselves. Hello, friend and listener, and thanks for being here for today's episode. This is the second installment of The Inspirited Word, and if you're coming to this without hearing January's inaugural episode, I'm actually going to suggest that you hop over there and listen to that one first. I'm aware that someday there will hopefully be way too many episodes of this podcast to always be sort of like a stubborn, self-referential completionist and suggest that folks go back to the beginning, but since we are near the beginning... I think today's topic will have a lot more impact if you've heard episode one. So if you have listened to that episode, or if you're just contrarian, that's fine. (laughs) Let's get straight into today's exploration, which is writing in right relationship. Last time on the pod, I talked about how storytelling craft is much more than just raw writing mechanics, things like plot, dialogue, character arcs, or even the deeper components like themes. Storytelling craft is more than just a series of rules or interlocking parts. It's really a living relationship between you, your story, and your reader. And so as writers, I think it's our responsibility to really cultivate right relationship at each of those points along the storytelling web. In this episode, I'm going to first come at this framework of writing and right relationship from the angle of relationship with readers, just because I think that aspect of it is a little bit more intuitive than, say, the idea of relationship with story, at least on the surface. We all know that our story is going to be read by an actual reader, right? (laughs) Or hopefully, ideally, multiple readers, plural. But this reality usually gets talked about in ways that strip that tangible, real relationship out of the storytelling exchange. Storytelling isn't really just a static, passive handoff of your ideas and the images that you've used to convey them. It's really an act of mutual, multi-layered encounter. First, you encounter the story as the writer while you're actually producing the draft. But then even once the writing and production of the book is done, the exchange isn't actually finished. The story then goes on to have new encounters with every real individual reader who picks up your book. I'm using the word encounter here to convey a certain type of experience that's basically any time that we're moved into like a different level of awareness or consciousness than whatever our typical baseline is. So the easiest examples of encounters in that sense of the word are interactions that we have with other human beings, Uh, something like a really engrossing and surprising conversation with a friend, maybe watching a live performance or even something a bit more passive like going to a museum, 
uh, maybe dancing in a crowded club, if that's your thing. Any sort of experience that makes you aware of both your own being and the beingness of others in any sort of heightened or clarified way. But encounters don't just have to be experiences with other humans. You can have encounters with animals, with plants, with objects. In the first episode of the pod, we had an encounter with a favorite story. So if you did the exercise that we walked through in that episode, think back now on the feeling that you had interacting with that story presence. That's the kind of encounter that can come from a story being in relationship with a reader and vice versa. But when we writers and editors talk about readers, you know, sort of with air quotes around it, (laughs) we're often not talking about individual human beings at all. We're usually actually talking about one of two things, the current book selling market, what readers are buying, or writing mechanics, what readers will expect. So we'll say things like, well, you know, readers just aren't buying zombie love stories right now. Sadly, right? I love zombie love stories. Or we'll say, readers will expect the protagonist to use that loaded rifle to shoot their zombie ex-lover by the end of this chapter. I mentioned in the first episode of the pod that I'm definitely not proposing that we stop talking about things like writing mechanics. And even though, as you may have gathered already, I'm not exactly what you would call an enthusiastic capitalist, but I'm extending my little disclaimer here to say that you can't completely ignore marketing if you intend to sell your books in a publishing marketplace. Sometimes it's very good and necessary to think about the potential paying audience for a book. And that's where we sort of get into these habits of talking about readers in the abstract. And because of that, it's really easy to get too focused on that abstract concept rather than actual living readers. And then we use that abstraction to justify some sort of marketing or mechanics decision. So all of this means that it's just really easy to stop thinking about readers as the very real individual humans who are going to experience, encounter, and perhaps hopefully be deeply transformed by our stories. And when we do forget about those living readers, that's when we stop writing in right relationship with them. We shut down the deeper possibilities and the opportunities to create that kind of encounter that I was talking about by forgetting that the storytelling is a relationship at all. And this can manifest in a lot of ways. It could maybe look like focusing much more on the market niche that you're trying to write for, that you know abstract concept of readers as buyers, than you spend actually getting in touch with the story that you're writing for them. Or it could look like adhering way too strictly to whatever outline model was touted in the last plan your best-selling novel book that you read, because you're, you know, operating under that idea that that type of plot is what readers will expect. Picture more air quotes and a capital R on reader in that sentence. And just for any more experimental writers listening, don't think that you're off the hook with this. Even if you're not the type of writer who is targeting an established market niche, even if you don't typically use those more standard story models to plan your drafts, you can still fall into a trap of writing for that disembodied abstract reader. There's always a risk with experimental stories that the final product is going to be focused way more on the experiment than on the actual storytelling. What I mean here is that no matter what genre you're writing in, you might end up with a book that's more about imposing a series of emotional or intellectual responses than actually telling a real reader a true story. 
So I can imagine some of the possible objections to what I just said. Stories are supposed to make a reader feel and think, right? That's basically the whole point of storytelling. Sure, yes. And yet, maybe no. (laughs) Or at least, maybe that's not all of it. I'd argue that the most powerful stories actually do more than evoke specific thoughts or feelings. And this is what makes them so deeply transformative. So just as an example, let's imagine a hypothetical novel with a very suspenseful scene. Let's say it's a scene in which one character is threatening to expose the protagonist's deep, dark secret, unless the protagonist does something truly awful. But then, plot twist, the confrontation is interrupted before it's resolved. If the writer is approaching the scene with the primary objective of evoking a target feeling, they might focus on making it as nail-biting as possible. And assuming that they succeed, a real reader encountering the scene might indeed bite their nails and be really nervous for our protagonist. If that reader enjoys that type of suspenseful story, then they will probably enjoy the scene. Sweet. Job done. The writer accomplished their goal of evoking dread and suspense. But if there's nothing deeper in that scene, nothing that invites that reader, that real individual reader, into a more nuanced encounter with the story, then they might thoroughly enjoy that book and then never think about it again once it's cycled off of their Kindle carousel. By focusing on imposing a response of nail-biting dread on the reader, again with, you know, the air quotes and the capital R, (laughs) the storyteller has created a very specific emotion. But that specific emotion ultimately has a pretty vague, even ephemeral effect. It's the book equivalent of like a Hallmark Channel movie where you're hardcore rooting for the big city lawyer to get together with the small town artisanal chocolatier. And then 20 minutes later, you can't remember any of the characters' names. So to make that point in a different and more serious way, if there's nothing to be curious about in that scene except whether or not the bad thing is actually going to happen, the only readers who will probably be truly impacted by that scene are going to be people who have a personal history with that bad thing. And that type of reader is probably not going to be very happy that you made them bite their nails for no deeper payoff than just feeling trauma and dread. So let's assume that we want to write something that goes deeper than just making people feel a certain thing. We are all disenchanted yet hopeful visionary writers here, after all. What if we let go of thinking stuff like, I want readers to bite their nails during this scene? That thought is essentially a thought with no relationship inside of it. It naturally leads to imagining readers as an abstract concept rather than individual humans. And it flattens out the emotional possibilities of the story rather than deepening them. Instead, what if we start asking, how is this scene inviting a real, living, breathing reader holding their Kindle or the book in their hands? How is it inviting them into a deeper encounter with the story? So I'm going to go back to that example of the hypothetical suspense scene. And let's say that you are the writer creating that scene. And let's also say that you have released that goal of making people bite their nails. If instead you're writing that scene through that lens of encouraging encounter and relationship, You might discover something really unexpected lying underneath the emotional surface of that scene, 
let's say it might be something deeply surprising about the antagonist motivations. And if this is during your drafting process, this revelation might be even a huge surprise to you as well. That kind of unpredictable organic revelation, that's what really invites a reader to revise their understanding of the characters and the story without actually telling them how that new understanding should make them feel. You're not telling them this scene should make you bite your nails. Instead, you're asking them, how does this scene make you feel and why? Each real living and breathing reader can then fully engage with the story on their own terms. And that is when the act of storytelling becomes a real relationship. Framing storytelling as an encounter allows us to be constantly discovering ways to deepen and complicate the emotional landscape on the page, rather than writing a scene that is a nail-biter, but is also nothing else. When I'm editing, one of the clues that I see sometimes on the page that kind of points me to think that this is what's going on, that opportunities like that to deepen the encounter are being missed, a lot of times what flags that for me is when there's a lot of solid craft happening on the page, but all the threads are working toward the same goal. So the dialogue is compelling, there's a good variety of physical beats revealing the character's inner thoughts, the setting is visceral, but if you were to summarize the most basic story content being conveyed, it's the same takeaway for like a whole page, a whole scene, or a whole chapter. Something like... Will the bad guy hurt the good guy? And just how much will it suck? Stay tuned to find out. Another way of describing it is that the story tapestry holds together well, but it's all one color. And I want to say here that this type of scene isn't actually bad writing per se. Like I said, the, the parts are all working together and they are achieving some sort of reaction. But there's always the potential for a scene and a story to be more to have a real life and spirit inside it. If we look deeper into the story, there's always potential to uncover new colors, that kind of unexpected hesitations or knee-jerk reactions from characters or pieces of dialogue that fully enliven key moments in the scene. What was initially something like straightforward suspense has now become a moment as complex and as full of nuanced flavors as an encounter in real life. So when this kind of story encounter emerges, the storyteller doesn't have as much direct control over exactly how a reader will interact with it. And I think that's why it can sometimes be a little bit difficult to really go into that space of relationship with the story and with the reader. If you create that kind of encounter, the reader will still be feeling suspense, the basic nature of the scene hasn't changed, but the more alive the tapestry and the spirit of the story is on the page, the more alive the reader's interaction with the story becomes. Maybe they become a bit sympathetic to the antagonist because they see this character as more human now. Or on the other hand, maybe that new humanity that you've uncovered in the antagonist actually makes the reader dislike and distrust them even more because it's become more personal. Either way, there's enough room and depth for true connection between the story and each one individual living reader who discovers it. And that connection has its own agency beyond what you might have planned or imagined. That's when a story evokes more than a strong but canned and ultimately shallow emotion. 
when you impose a strong reaction, a reader might come away saying, whoa, that was a nail biter and I really loved it. Or maybe, whoa, that was a nail biter and I absolutely hated it. When you capture a living encounter on the page, the reader instead might say, wow, my spirit just got cracked open a little. That right there is right relationship in storytelling. That's when you're offering something to a reader that fully acknowledges and calls forth their individual humanity, instead of just punching their buttons to get a predictable response. It's one thing to be able to recognize those missed opportunities for depth in somebody else's writing, or on the other side, to recognize when a writer has created a really powerful scene. It's another thing entirely to be able to apply that lens to your own writing, especially without it turning into like just a new type of little hypercritical downward doom spiral that tanks yet another one of your writing sessions. And most particularly when you're working on an early draft, if you spend your energy thinking about like, I must create the most powerful enlivened version of every moment in the book you're probably just going to end up in that over-analysis mode. You're never going to finish. So then how do we actually apply this to our craft? I think the key to this is a core mindset shift that I'm going to refer to as unlearning mastery. And I want to make it clear that that is not my phrasing. I'm borrowing and kind of adapting that wording from writer Bio Akomolafe. He is a psychologist and a philosopher, creating works primarily in the fields of decolonial thought and post-humanist ecology. And I'm guessing those fields probably don't sound especially relevant to thinking about the creative writing process. But stick with me, I promise it'll loop back around. (laughs) His concept of unlearning mastery is deeply generative and creative in a way that I think can be incredibly powerful for any disenchanted writer who's prone to those downward doom spirals. The first step of unlearning mastery, and again, this is as Okomolafe frames it, is actually understanding mastery as a concept or a framework that shapes pretty much every component of mainstream European thought, whether that is scientific thought, Western religious thought, or whatever. And I'm using European here to mean all cultures that descend from post-Enlightenment Europe. So settler colonial folks, this is definitely us. So essentially, in the European worldview, all creative, spiritual, and intellectual fields and endeavors are organized around the concept of increasing levels of mastery. This framework maps onto individual people and our journey through learning skills, but it also shapes the way the culture views entire fields of study and experience. So scientific discovery, for example, leads to more and more mastery over nature. God rewards the faithful and gives them mastery over all the beasts of the earth. A great work of art is the literal masterpiece of an individual highly skilled genius. And if the only people who seem to understand or like that masterpiece are people who learned to appreciate art through a university department, then so much the better. And just for full disclosure, I'm saying this as somebody with a creative writing degree from a school whose primary sports rivalry is based on colonial era bros stealing library books from each other. So I'm definitely pointing a finger squarely at myself with this critique. 
So to recap, the first component of the standard Western worldview is that all endeavors can and should progress toward mastery. The second component of this framework is that it requires a fixed objective world that is basically fully cooked and that can therefore be controlled and understood if you just apply enough skill or intellect or inspiration. Humans can act on this fixed world with any sort of intellectual intent, and when we have enough mastery, we create our intended result. So you may be noticing that this sounds a bit like that writing example of the scene intended to make readers bite their nails. In the framework of mastery, not only do humans have the potential for complete agency over this static, fully cooked world, humans are also the only ones who have real agency in the world. Humans are the only beings with high enough intellectual capacity to really exercise agency, to act on that fixed world. Okomolafe calls this the ability to do stuff with a capital D and S. But his framework of unlearning mastery invites us to think about the world in a much more expansive, enlivened way. What if the world is not fixed? What if it's only partially cooked? What if it's always in the process of cooking itself? What if all the systems are always evolving and acting and interacting and emerging as a collective creation? Humans don't act on the world. We are embedded in the world. And in this kind of living, embedded world, mastery becomes impossible. But our encounters with the world and everything in it become deeper. To quote Okomolafe, the world becomes, quote, archetypally active. And at this point, you might be thinking, okay, Mary, that sounds really cool. What the hell does it have to do with writing? When we unlearn mastery of writing and storytelling, our entire way of being storytellers changes. It has to change. That idea of the masterpiece bestowed by the singular genius upon abstract readers who then either understand his intent or don't, that becomes sort of silly. Instead, stories become evolving experiences that the writer is embedded in but does not fully control or complete or create out of nothing. Stories are never finished. They're never experienced the same way twice, and they are inherently collaborative encounters at every single step along the way. You're writing the story. The story is also writing you. I talked earlier about finding and uncovering opportunities to invite each reader into a deep and really personal encounter with the story. But those invitations appear first as invitations the story is making to the writer. Our work as writers and as storytellers is to be open and available to what the story is telling us. That's the foundational relationship that puts life into our words, that makes storytelling transformative. This takes me to one of the other key points on that web of right relationship that I mentioned at the start of the episode. And I'm talking about the point here where you as the writer are in relationship with the story. And we do need to think about that other point, that connection with readers, at some stage along our drafting and storytelling journey. But the relationship that we experience in the initial drafting process is always our own relationship with the story. What can our stories recognize and call forth out of us? 
And how can we nurture that kind of transformative, creative encounter? I think being in right relationship to the story as the writer has a lot more to do with our mind and our patterns and habits of thinking than with the components of our actual writing process. So I'm not going to tell you that you can't work from an outline, for example, if you want to be in a really deep creative encounter with a story. I am not going to tell you that you need to write every day or write only when the inspiration strikes or insert whatever specific process advice you've heard here. I think the first step to write relationship with story is write relationship with our storytelling selves, no matter how those storytelling selves show up and actually get the work done. So to unlearn mastery, to wash the crusty scales of colonial era bro philosophy from our visionary eyes, to bring forth truly transformative writing, the first thing we have to unlearn is the way we think about ourselves, the way we treat ourselves as somebody who hasn't mastered the craft, somebody who is failing all the time, right up until someday, hopefully, finally, we get it right. We have to stop seeing the page in front of us as a mirror that shows us whether we're good enough, smart enough, talented enough. No wonder our stories can't reach us. When was the last time something spoke to you through a mirror? Okay, depending on what you're into, maybe you do talk to other beings through mirrors on a semi-regular basis. Uh, it's happened to me on occasion, but you get the metaphor that I'm aiming at. So this episode has been a bit sprawling, but to bring it down to something for you to stick in your pocket, a little conceptual worry stone for you to walk away with, what's the first thing that you want to unlearn when it comes to your relationship with your storytelling self? And what's a real action that you could take to start unlearning that? If you want to dig a bit deeper into those prompts, head to the link in the show notes and join the Inspirited Word newsletter circle. You'll get some tips on how to unpack what we talked about in the episode and some pointers on how you can approach taking those concrete steps toward unlearning mastery in your writing practice. Thanks for being here and for listening today. And if you're digging these first episodes of The Inspirited Word, please write a review of the pod in your app of choice to help more disenchanted but visionary writers find this space. I'll really appreciate it. The spirit of the pod will really appreciate it. And it will help this fledgling space sort of find its feet and the people who need to be here. In the meantime, keep well, keep writing, and I'll see you in the next episode. I don't think I've ever said the phrase bite one's nails or bite your nails as much as I did in this recording session. And it's a little gross. I'm not loving it.